This is Automated Beat Machine with Atwood Magazine, and I'm your host, Danny Vagnoni. This is a show about oddities, triumphs, failures, and everything in between in the music world. Spotify has found itself in hot water lately, whether from increasing scrutiny on the way it pays artists to the controversy surrounding Joe Rogan's exclusive deal with the platform. That controversy spans the length and breadth of internet discourse with epidemiologists calling for episodes of the Rogan experience to be taken off of Spotify due to misinformation, and advocates for artist parody noting that Spotify's enormous deal with Joe Rogan, estimated at more than $200 million, belies the motivation behind paying artists so little per stream. I sat down with Evan Greer, director of Fight for the Future, to elevate this topic with her incredible knowledge and history of advocacy. You know, some folks within the music industry and particularly bigger kind of more traditional players like the RAA and others, you know, sort of point to this and say, well, what we need is more, you know, copyright enforcement. And I would actually argue that, um, you know, overzealous copyright laws and copyright maximalism is really what's at the root of a company like Spotify having so much dominance and monopoly power. I'd actually rather go back to the days of Napster um, or, you know, I'd rather basically people pirate and share my music freely than, um, you know, stream it on a platform that's basically extracting money from artists in the ecosystem. Um, And I think, you know, the goal here is not let's lock music back down or make it less accessible. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. it's music should be accessible and, you know, the internet should be a place where, we kind of have the entire accumulation of human creativity at our fingertips. As a quick aside, I prepared this script and interviewed Evan before the Joe Rogan ex Spotify scandal even broke. At first, I thought this was unfortunate. After a few weeks of spilled ink and thoughts on the ordeal, however, I'm glad the episode isn't bogged down in that. I don't think there are any clever observations or gotchas left to be made. But in case you were hoping for some commentary on this, there is one thing it's helpful to keep in mind. While most artists make less than a penny per stream, Spotify went out of their way to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for an exclusive deal with Rogan and his special brand of faded-in-a-college-dorm-style commentary. The money's not not there. Now, on with the show. So here today with us, we have Evan Greer. Evan, would you like to introduce yourself for everyone? Yeah, sure. So my name's Evan Greer. I am a queer musician, activist, writer based in Boston. My kind of full-time work is I help run an organization called Fight for the Future, which focuses on fighting for people's basic rights in the digital age. So we're kind of best known for organizing some of the largest online protests in history around things like net neutrality, stopping SOPA PIPA, fighting back against things like facial recognition and government surveillance basically trying to fight for a world where technology is largely used to uplift and empower people rather than a world where it's used to exploit and oppress people. So that's kind of what I do during the day. And then as you know, Danny, I, I make a lot of music as well um, and, and write fairly frequently for, for a number of different outlets. 
Now, Evan might not be willing to dip into pure name-dropping braggadocio, but I am on her behalf. The likes of Howard Zinn and Tom Morello have talked about their admiration for her, and she's worked with the entire lineage of modern protest acts, from Pete Seeger to Anti-Flag. More directly related to our conversation today, Evan is also deeply opposed to the surveillance state. Now, this isn't directly an album interview, but I have to say I was speechless when I found out about Spotify's surveillance. A 2019 article by Liz Pelly in The Baffler piqued my interest in Spotify's more malignant practices. Liz is incidentally a writer who will likely beat me to every punch and do it so more eloquently than I could imagine. I'll link her in the description. When I heard about your album though, I knew I had to talk to you about it. So I guess at a basic level, what drove you to write the album and title it as you did? Yeah, I mean, in a funny way, they it was sort of almost two separate processes. You know, I wrote and recorded the album basically entirely during the quarantine. And it really is in a lot of ways a product of the quarantine. I think in some ways having that constraint of just feeling like I couldn't go out into a studio or even really go collaborate very easily with other musicians. Um, and so just sort of being forced to be by myself with GarageBand and a couple guitars and a bass, I think was actually really good for me and sort of pushed me to sort of create something rather than, you know, just always being like, well, I guess I'll get back into the studio sometime when I have time, which I never will. I work every day on these issues surrounding surveillance capitalism and big tech and the harms of algorithmic manipulation. And so, you know, my music has always been somewhat of a reflection of the activist work that I do. And it was almost impossible to not like have some of that seep into the music. Obviously the song Surveillance Capitalism is like very much directly about that. Um, but, you know, and you know, it's not like the whole album is necessarily about that, but it's all sort of happening within the context of, of that world. And yeah, and then I was always thinking about like, well, what do I wanna call the album? And it was just kind of like, I don't know, album names can be so whatever. Um, and basically I just decided like, well, you know, the title of the album is sort of a platform and I may as well use that platform to say something, uh, meaningful and provocative, um, and try and get people to think a little bit. And I think Spotify is sort of, you know, it's increasingly been scrutinized, but I think for a long time, they kind of got away with just being like, oh, we're like a cool music streaming company. Everyone likes music, right? Like it's all good. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, myself included, have used Spotify sort of without even really thinking about the company and its business model and the impact that it's having, not just on artists, but on art itself. Um, that was when I kind of decided to call the album Spotify Surveillance. It was actually even before the all the news came out about Spotify pushing in this direction of, of patenting kind of really creepy and invasive voice recognition software. And then I was just kind of like, oh, well, mm -hmm. they're just trying to prove my point. <laughs> you know, thanks, Spotify. But, <laughs> um, you know, and we ran a, a whole campaign around that at stopspotifysurveillance.org. But, um, but yeah, I was really trying to draw attention to even just sort of the more insidious or less blatant forms of surveillance that a company like Spotify is conducting, which is basically they're, they're harvesting data about all of us and they're using it to recommend music. And I don't think we've even begun to understand how harmful that could be. Um, and it's a total departure from how music and art has been created and consumed for centuries. Um, and I shudder to think of a future where, where music is made to please some cold-blooded algorithm rather than made for the purpose of, of human connection and expression. When you open up Spotify, the first thing you'll notice, at least after scrolling past your recently played music and podcasts, 
is the abundance of playlists and recommendations. Music you might like, made for you, more like X, and so on. Some aren't specifically geared to your listening habits. Decade playlists also feature heavily, as do currently popular playlists. Spotify has become so widely used specifically because of its playlist features, both those algorithmically generated and user generated. This is where Spotify gets its reputation as a music discovery app, an identity that Spotify has cultivated through its marketing and features. User generated playlists have a mimetic and warmly communal quality, with Facebook groups like Oddly Specific Playlists, a group where we make playlists for fictional characters, hmm, request to join? And another, Spotify Music for Promotion for Creators and Discovery for Listeners, which even has the noble goal of highlighting smaller artists. These groups coalesce around the ability to share tracks and discover new music. I don't typically use the app for streaming, and I've cultivated friendships purely on the back of playlist sharing, popping on, throwing together some tracks, and sending it off. It seems like the story Spotify tells about itself resonates with most of its users. They like it because they view it as a streaming platform with a robust music discovery component added in, which is an immense convenience for most people. In 2020, Spotify's Discover Weekly playlist, the platform's gold standard of music discovery, reached 2.3 billion hours of streaming on its fifth anniversary. This is a number so large as to be completely meaningless, and in the cloying copywriting prose of the worst writers alive today, Spotify tries to expand on this fact. For the numerically inclined, that's 8.4 trillion seconds, 140 billion minutes, 2.3 billion hours, 97.3 million days, 13.9 million weeks, 266.5 thousand years. Anyway, a number so large as to be meaningless is still a very large number. So taking this as evidence that Spotify is a music discovery platform doesn't seem like too much of a stretch. So we can say with confidence that Spotify is a music streaming platform with a robust music discovery component that seems to keep it head and shoulders above other music streaming platforms. Spotify claims that it has 286 million active users each month, though it's unclear how these numbers line up with real people given that a single person could have multiple accounts, what Spotify qualifies as active, and so on. But regardless of the actual numbers, Spotify reports revenue of $2 billion with an approximate market share of 36%. Its nearest rival is Apple Music at just 18%. It's also worth noting that these aren't exclusive numbers. 40% of Apple Music users report that they also use Spotify. The platform also claims approximately 96 million subscribers, which means that quite a substantial audience remains on the ad-driven version of the platform, about 190 million by my estimate. But again, the numbers of actual users vary depending on whose definition of active you're using. But what if Spotify isn't a music streaming platform? What if Spotify's product isn't music, but you? Meet Jana Jakovelich. She was formerly the head of Spotify's programmatic solutions and now works with AI development and advertising company Cognitive, which, as reported by Liz Pelly in The Baffler, claims to be the first neural network technology that unearths patterns of consumer behavior using deep learning to predict and target consumers. As Pelly points out, it's a bit of an odd career shift, isn't it? Cognitive's own CEO, Jeremy Fain, identifies the company as an AI outlet whose goal is ultimately to build a centralized AI deep learning tool for marketers. As he said in an interview with MarTech Series, As the regulation of data continues to evolve, the mobile device along with the IP addressable outdoor and television slash OTT spaces. These pompous assholes all talk like this. Cell phones and streaming platforms make a centralized AI for marketing much more realistic. That's one of the many reasons we started Cognitive. 
What he's saying here, euphemistically, is that cognitive aims to be a centralized database of user behavior. This is, to put it simply, surveillance. And what does Fane think to use this awesome power for? To sell you another fucking diet supplement. Or one of those awful apps called, like, well, like Cognitive. Or, like, Be Mine, a tawdry and condescending dating app that lets you date. On the blockchain. Will you be mine? I swear to God, I'm not trying to make this a crypto hate show. It's just so easy. So, like Pelly says in her article, Yakovelich's move to cognitive doesn't seem to scan. Unless you question what Spotify's business model actually is, in which case it becomes particularly revealing. Spotify itself is quite forthright about its goals, if you look at the right channels. On the surface, much of its marketing material leans heavily into its identity as a music discovery platform. But in the Wall Street Journal, Seth Farbman, a Spotify marketing exec, explains Spotify's ambitions, says that Spotify started to watch the media landscape change. We saw what was happening with a real sort of bifurcation of digital media. Basically, it's Google, Facebook, and everybody else. We thought, it seems like there's an opportunity for a third way, for another option. We said this is where we'll put even more emphasis. Here, he's talking about advertising. He wants Spotify to be the third biggest platform for advertisers. And so, End of show, right? There's no point to prove. Spotify's own execs admit that scale for Spotify means becoming an advertising platform with a streaming service built in. Well, not exactly. If we could leave it at that, Spotify would only be as dreadful as every other medium that pelts you with ads. Traditional mediums like TV and radio, dumb fire internet advertising, and so on. But that approach doesn't even come close to Spotify's ambitions. In 2015, Spotify acquires EchoNest, a music intelligence firm. It's around this time that Spotify realizes it has a treasure trove of user data, freely offered and eminently exploitable for marketing. Playlists. They didn't even have to do anything to acquire all this data, it was simply a feature of the platform that had to passively exist while the users of the product did the work for Spotify. And you might first ask why user-generated playlists are so exploitable for marketing purposes, until you understand what goes into making a playlist. I belong, as I said before, to a Facebook group called Oddly Specific Playlists, where members share fun playlists, almost always on Spotify, that range from songs for when the mushroom cloud is overhead, from the post, not apocalyptic songs, songs for when you're literally staring up at the mushroom cloud, to jazz and it's early morning and snow is pattering against the window. Mine. Pelly mentions that Spotify found a trove of some 400,000 barbecue playlists. The point is, playlist data gives Spotify emotional, physical, and activity-based surveillance information. Svedka wants to advertise while you're listening to your Let's Get Lit playlist? Done. Samsung wants to dodge an ad spot on your, yeah, I'm DTF, depressed, playlist. No sooner said than done. Fucking Elephant the Elephant wants to advertise during your I Just Buried Grandma playlist? That's cool. Okay, Elephant. Why'd you make that play? Pelly calls on Shoshana Zuboff's work, the mammoth surveillance capitalism, and invokes Zuboff's idea of the behavioral futures market, a blood-curdling term that likens moods to stocks and argues that companies largely in tech, want to predict the future moods of consumers. Shoshana Zuboff argues that this, quote, unilaterally claims human experience as free raw material for translation into behavioral data. This refers to the behavioral data extracted from users using big data products. 
The social contract users sign with companies like Alphabet, Google's holding company, and Spotify is that this data returns to them as improvements on the product. This is nominally the case, but the majority of the data goes to markets of behavioral futures. Zuboff calls this a behavioral surplus, a huge amount of data collected but not needed to improve the product itself that the company then turns into profit. Spotify's brand of emotional surveillance and investment in the AI tech to do so fits that desire to a T. But here's where the platform takes it one step further. Spotify insists on itself as a mood-boosting platform. It isn't simply about predicting future behavior for Spotify, but actively influencing it. Serving you playlists that try to railroad you into a certain state of mind, serving contextual ads based on the emotional valence of your playlist. If Twitter is where you go to doom scroll, Instagram is where you go to feel inadequate, Spotify is where you go to cleanse yourself of those psychic ills. But if you narrow this data to only be about how Spotify uses the surveillance data for marketing, you lose perspective on how it can be harmful in other ways. This is something that is admittedly a bit of a blind spot for me. Copyright law and data usage rights are such a Byzantine labyrinth, intentionally, that understanding them without investing more time than I have into them is quite a challenge. And the same goes for your average layperson. For that, we turn back to my conversation with Evan. So what is the real practical danger of companies having all this data? I predict an easy response to this might just be like, well, all they're doing is improving the product, or I don't have anything to hide. They're giving you better song recommendations. I don't agree with that, but... To you, what is the material harm being done here? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a bunch of different types of harm, I think, associated with data harvesting and collection um, on the private side. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one that I think doesn't get talked about quite enough is just the way that corporate surveillance and government surveillance work hand in hand. Um, you know, the more companies that have intimate information about you, like where you live and not just where you live, but where you were yesterday, all day, um, mm. things like that. Um, it's important to recognize that some of that data can be collected by law enforcement um, or immigration enforcement or other government agencies, often without a warrant, um, just using something called an administrative subpoena. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, once, you know, the more that companies have access to that information on all of us, um, the more vulnerable all of us are to that type of government surveillance, which of course has disproportionate impact on marginalized communities like immigrant communities, um, activists and those who face government repression um, and others. Um, so that's one one type of harm. And, and I guess just to be kind of specific about that, let's talk about Spotify's um, you know patent that they filed to kind of conduct uh, essentially what they're claiming is emotional recognition on mm -hmm. uh, voice analysis. And one of the things they claimed to be able to detect was anger. Right. So you can imagine law enforcement going to Spotify and saying, hey, you know, we're investigating an incident that happened at this party. We want to know whether your emotion recognition algorithm detected angry voices at this time. Right. You know, that's like a, a actual example of something that could happen um, if we continue in this direction that we're heading where, you know, almost every device and service that we interact with is constantly listening to us, monitoring us, analyzing our voice, analyzing our face. Um, you know, we've even seen proposals, you know, from companies like Amazon who are selling wearable devices that are analyzing your heartbeat or other, uh, you know, sensitive health information. Um, you know, the more that we allow companies to collect all of that, 
um, you know, the more surface area there is, again, not just even for law enforcement, but stalkers and hackers and, you know, uh, you know, any number of different folks that are kind of looking to do harm. Um, you know, data is a form of power and it can be used for good, but it can also be used for tremendous evil. That's kind of one category. I think in some ways, a lot of people maybe hear that and they're like, well, whatever. I'm not that worried about the cops knocking down my door. Um, you know, so yeah. that sounds bad, but I'm not that worried about that. And I think the other category of harm from data kind of abuse is the one that is, again, more insidious because it's often being sold to us as a form of convenience. I think, you know, again, going back to Spotify, you know, we know that, um, you know, what a big part of their business model is kind of trying to learn about what type of music you like or what type of mood you might be in and then mm -hmm. using that to serve you more music that they think you will like. And I think, you know, again, it's it's hard to even kind of wrap our minds around the ways that that could change music. I mean, you mentioned Liz Pelly, you know, she's written, um, you know, awesome pieces about, you know, kind of this advent of like Spotify core or the idea that like artists are basically creating music for Spotify's algorithm based on, yeah. you know, songs of theirs that have done really well on the platform. There's this whole sense of like kind of chill background music being more mm -hmm. profitable because, you know, it's because of the streaming model that Spotify uses. Um, and so I think with, you know, Spotify, we can think of that as like something that's effectively going to be degrading art over time, where the music that we will have in the future will literally be worse um, because yeah. it will be, again, created to kind of please an algorithm rather than created, you know, for humans. I think when you look to other platforms like Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, you can see this other type of harm, right, where your data is not just being used to serve you content that they think will you'll find engaging, but it's sort of being used to micro-target content directly into the minds of the people who are most susceptible to it. And that's where I think we see you know, these types of specific harms, like these platforms providing sort of a supercharged recruitment model for white supremacists and yeah. conspiracy theorists and really harmful ideologies. You know, a lot of the attention is focused on the speech itself, which I think is unfortunate because A, it's really, really difficult to regulate speech without doing more harm than good. But B, I think it's ignoring that, you know, it's, it's good to have platforms that host user-generated content. That's what is, you know, kind of giving all of us more of a voice than we used to have. The What's harmful about these platforms is the way that they use data, um, effectively surveillance of our behaviors to put their thumb on the scale and show us the content that they think we want to see in order to keep us clicking and scrolling and remaining on the platform so that they can generate advertising revenue. And I think, you know, just naming that as the root cause of the problem helps get us closer to solutions. You know, again, it's really challenging to directly regulate even things like algorithmic amplification um, without running afoul of the First Amendment. Um, but what we've been calling for as kind of a harm reduction measure was is Congress should finally pass a real federal data privacy law. They've been dragging their feet on this for years, but the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world that doesn't have a basic law that governs how companies can collect your data and what they can do with it once they have it. Um, you know, just passing something like that 
would be a really significant measure to reduce the harm of the surveillance practices of these companies, which I think are much easier and more effective to regulate than anything that touches uh, user-generated content or free speech. One thing you'll often hear in response to criticisms of platforms like Spotify is, well, you signed the TOS that is a voluntary agreement. Here's a softball. Tell me from an artist's perspective why that is bullshit. <laughs> well, you know, I named my album Spotify as Surveillance, and it's available on Spotify because deciding to keep it off of Spotify is basically not an option if mm -hmm. I want people to hear it, um, given the dominance of Spotify in the market right now. This podcast, incidentally, going up on Spotify. Um, and then on the user side, I think this is really important too, is just, you know, tech companies have completely distorted our notion of consent. And, you know, I, I mentioned that directly in, in the song Surveillance Capitalism, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. you know, about manufacturing consent in reference to the Noam Chomsky book. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, this idea that you can check a box and, you know, on the end of a terms of service that they know that no one ever reads and that you wouldn't understand if you did read it and that then you've consented to uh, effectively having your data harvested and used to manipulate you. Um, you know, first of all, you can't meaningfully consent to something that you don't, you know, aren't really being uh, told what the risks associated with it are. And yeah. then second of all, you can't really meaningfully consent to something if you don't really have alternatives. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, if you want to be able to go find a song, any song, um, and just, you know, check it out or listen to it, um, for the most part, most people have either YouTube or Spotify. Um, you know, there's not a lot of options out there. Um, you know, to just kind of like have something that is essentially a library of all music that's been created. And so I think that just sort of makes a mockery of, of you know, the concept of consent um, because, mm -hmm. you know, we're, it's not really consent, it's coercion. We're being coerced into handing over our data um, by, you know, either by being convinced that it's a form of convenience for us or because, you know, we're, it's being obscured for us how potentially risky and harmful it is to hand so much private information over to corporations. And, you know, and then finally, because, um, you know, we're sort of, we feel like we don't have much of a choice or we're just kind of overwhelmed with the idea of like, well, if I want to participate in society these days, this is the cost of, of doing business basically. And I think, you know, a big part of our work has to be about shifting that thinking and making it so that like, you shouldn't have to be a lawyer to, you know, who can vet every terms of service you sign in order to use the internet safely and, and in a way that respects your rights. So again, I think that's a collective problem, not an individual problem, right? I hear a lot of people say like, well, why don't you just get off Facebook if you don't like it so much? Or why don't you just quit Spotify? Yeah. Um, and I think that that is trying to turn a collective problem into an individual consumer choice problem, which is actually exactly what corporations would love for it to be right because then it just becomes you know about this individualist well everyone for themselves and what that ends up doing is is screwing over the most marginalized members of our community um, mm -hmm. who often have even less choice or uh, less ability to to opt out of things like surveillance um, or data harvesting or collection you know particularly as privacy is increasingly being turned into kind of a luxury feature rather than a default feature in most types of technology. In a blog post decrepit with self-importance, Spotify for Brands sets out to tell the story of how their partnership with Calvin Klein seeks to amplify Gen Z's positive outlook. Aside from the patronizing nature of the line coming from on high and the complexity of analyzing a generation's outlook as an aggregate, 
The blog posts contain some incredible ad speak and gag inducing bromides that would wither even the most hardened media consumer. A favorite is from Cedric Murak, Executive Vice President, Global Creative, Calvin Klein. Through audio, we were able to directly tie our brand campaign to the songs and artists that inspire our audience and establish a new kind of connection. Cedric seems like a true believer in this shit, but if you're connected to the outlook of Gen Z, such as it exists in any meaningful way, he'd understand that if there is a central theme amongst the younger generations, surveys point to it being a distrust of entrenched capital invading every space, both physical and psychic. Such an outlook, corroborated by marketers across the spectrum, might be difficult news to a Spotify looking to transform itself into an ad platform, but their hope seems to hinge on treating ads as pills in a puppy's con, surrounding them with mood-boosting content and ensuring the ads align with Gen Z's broadly held beliefs in equality and social justice. But the campaign also performed a clever, if insidious, sleight of hand. This campaign encouraged Gen Z listeners to answer a question. Their answer to that question was a song, submitted to a massive, user-generated playlist that intends to isolate the artists and songs that define Gen Z's musical idea of hope. So ultimately, this ad campaign is a Trojan horse for Spotify to develop a precise profile of a very specific demographic. It's almost shameless how specifically the Calvin Klein collab pinpoints the exact info Spotify needs to <clears throat> optimize their advertising, demographics, specific mood, and even the exact songs Gen Z finds most compelling were all built into the campaign from the beginning. And the best part is, they were voluntarily offered. So this brings us to the crux of Spotify's model. What product was Spotify actually advertising with their Calvin Klein collab? Was it trendy underwear and clothes? Unlikely. See, the real product is the user. The user is the product Spotify sells to larger companies. More specifically, it's an enormous set of highly targeted demographic data. The early days of the internet were filled with Panglossian hopes of a horizontal network, where out of the chaos of this law-free, though not lawless, new sphere, ordinary people could organize intentional communities and subvert existing power relationships. For a while, it even seemed kind of inevitable. It turns out the nature of the internet made it just as good for silly, decentralized networks of fandom as for spontaneous organizing in the real world. For many casual observers, the proof of the internet's possibility to project actual power into the world came with the Arab Spring, where spontaneous organization through the internet helped trigger widespread protests in countries with unpopular regimes, or at least was credited with doing so. This is a narrative worth some skepticism, but not worth talking about here. The sentiment occasionally extended to the first wave of BLM protests following Michael Brown's death, asterisk here, murder, as Palestinian activists communed online with BLM protesters, coaching them on the tactics of riot police shared between the US and Israel. However, the promise had begun to sour even then. But on the skeletons of weird GeoCities sites strewn with bedazzled gifts of Gur from Invader Zim, a new order emerged. Like land, the free spaces of the internet have been privatized foreclosed with the backing of a nanny state, made even more egregious by the fact that the internet was publicly funded to start with. The goal is to extract profit from work done by others. Oh, oh, well, I was just going to say really quick, and I think yeah. it's important, you know, I think when we focus in on the low wages uh, or the you know, low royalties, it's just important that we remember, though, that this company is making a lot of money. Um, yeah. It's just that none of that money is going to artists or, or very little of that money is going to artists. Um, and I think that that's important because, you know, I think there's some, 
you know, some folks within the music industry and particularly bigger kind of more traditional players like the RAA and others, you know, sort of point to this and say, well, what we need is more, you know, copyright enforcement. And I would actually argue that, um, you know, overzealous copyright laws and copyright maximalism is really what's at the root of a company like Spotify having so much dominance and monopoly power. I'd actually rather go back to the days of Napster um, or, you know, I'd rather basically people pirate and share my music freely than, um, you know, stream it on a platform that's basically extracting money from artists in the ecosystem. Um, and I think, you know, the goal here is not let's lock music back down or make it less accessible. I think, it, you know, mm -hmm. it's music should be accessible and, you know, the internet should be a place where we kind of have the entire accumulation of human creativity at our fingertips. And we need to fight for a system where, where that's possible, where everyone, regardless of their income, um, is able to access art and, and creation, um, and also where artists are fairly compensated for our labor. And I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. And I also don't think that those two things will be accomplished by just ever more internet censorship, copyright enforcement that benefits primarily big record labels and corporate rights holders like Disney. I think we need a full restructuring of that system that's about, again, prioritizing the needs of individual artists and creators rather than big companies. My mind turns to Jake the dog's surprising wisdom in Adventure Time as the perfect encapsulation of this. Man, don't you know? The laws ain't made to help earthy cats like us. They're not? Nah, man. Listen, here on our planet, back in the old days, back in the real old days, it was just every man for himself, scrubbling and scratch scrobbling for the good stuff, the greenest valleys and scratch scrobbling, and the strongest, meanest men got the best stuff. They got the green valleys and were like, the rest of you, y'all scratch get sand. And that's when they made the laws, you see. Once the strong guys got it how they liked it, they said, this is fair now, this is the law. Once they were winning, they changed the rules up. Whoa. While the enclosure of the digital commons isn't conducted at gunpoint, merely at point of a tedious TOS, the logic of permission remains. It's so naturalized that private entities do and in fact ought to own profit-making resources and all of their output that it simply seems forgone that usage data, location, communication, history, mood, ought to also belong to them. Putting private enclosures into relief with a theoretical non-private enclosure gives the thought clarity. So I asked Evan what she thought a truly disintermediated system would look like, one that was fair to artists and people that wanted to support them. I mentioned Bandcamp. Bandcamp has been purchased by Epic Games, but I think we agreed that Bandcamp was at best a transient solution to what is ultimately a fundamental problem. Yeah, I mean, you know, shout out to Bandcamp, I think. You know, those folks are great and and the service that they're providing for artists is, like you said, I, I think, you know, kind of one of the best out there right now. Mm -hmm. In terms of where we go, I mean, I think the technology already exists to have a Spotify that's entirely owned by musicians. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the problem has been adoption. Um, and also, again, the problem is that our current copyright laws make it really, really hard to spin something like that up, you know, just because of the complexity of doing it um, and not getting your own music taken down but because of the way that the system works now. Um, but I do think that there really genuinely are, you know, opportunities to create decentralized alternatives 
to platforms like Spotify or Apple Music, where you know that could essentially run as a nonprofit, where you know all of the revenue goes back to artists minus you know whatever the transparent cost of running the platform is. Um, and I think that that is within reach. And really, all we have to do, or, or what we have to do, is fight for policies that both protect that ability for software developers and artists and creators to come together to solve those problems um, and also to create a level playing field so that something like that could get off the ground and compete with something like Spotify without getting crushed by overzealous copyright enforcement um, or kind of other ineffective policies that primarily benefit the biggest players. So the idea of copyright maximalism might be kind of controversial to a lot of people who listen to music or in the music industry. There's this idea that copyright is what lets artists hold domain over what is ultimately their intellectual property. But Evan holds a different perspective, and one that I think is very nuanced and familiar with the actual material reality of how music is distributed. I asked if copyright maximalism was actually preventing another platform from getting off the ground that would help achieve parity for artists. If you also just look historically at how copyright has played out for various different artists and communities, you'll see that, you know, generally speaking, um, kind of restrictive copyright policies have often really screwed over artists. I mean, even huge mm -hmm. artists like Taylor Swift, who's had to re-record her entire catalog because yeah. um, of how copyright works or doesn't work. You know, there's so many stories of particularly Black artists who, uh, you know, entered into really um, exploitative agreements um, and, you know, have you know, have have not been fairly compensated for their incredible contribution to art and music because mm -hmm. some white record label executive was basically making most of the money off of their work. And then I think it also is just important that we recognize the next generation of artists and creators, um, most of whom are not trying to sell records, but are creating videos, are remixing content, are DJs who are trying to play music on Instagram and getting their streams shut down. Um, you know, we need a copyright system that works not just for, you know, people like me who are still out here playing boring guitar music, but also for the next generation of artists and creators who are going to be interacting with culture in just totally different ways than the copyright laws we have on the books now that were envisioned, you know, a long time ago, basically before the internet. Um, you know, the DMCA itself uh, obviously is, you know, the most recent attempt to bring copyright in line with the internet. But if you think about even that, you know, that's a law that passed before Facebook existed, before, yeah. you know, the the current internet that we have now. And so I don't, you know, I, I know it is controversial because many artists are kind of spoon fed um, this constant stream of copyright maximalist propaganda from, from organizations like the RIAA. But it shouldn't be controversial to say that we should update our copyright laws to create a system that works for all types of artists and creators, um, not just for one type and particularly not just for the largest players or institutions within the uh, arts ecosystem. Pulling back a bit, one of the ways I framed this was as an enclosure of the commons. Basically, the internet was a publicly funded DARPA project and in the early days seemed like a fantastic way to gather people of common interest. But those spaces got enclosed and now we have a capital B big few places on the internet. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google. Author James Boyle calls it the enclosure of the intangible commons of the mind, which is sort of this lovely dramatic phrase that you get from academics occasionally. But it doesn't matter what you put there, it's going to be interpolated through them. They're going to make money on the data, et cetera, et cetera. 
You have to exist in an enclosure where everything you do is logged by a private company and that data is sold for profit. This is what you talk about on the track Surveillance Capitalism, which itself is a reference to Shoshana Zuboff's work of the same name. So, like, what would a music commons look like to you as opposed to an enclosure? Mm, this is a great question. I mean, again, I think part of this is about law and policy, mm. but I think it's also about just rethinking a little bit of how we think about this, or maybe also just bringing law and policy more in line with the way that artists actually work. I mean, especially if you look at art and music over the last 30 or 40 years, it's become, you know, increasingly common for artists to sample each other's work or directly reference each other's work. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, <laughs> with, you know, some exceptions of like people suing each other over silly things aside, um, you know, I think for the most part, if you ask most artists, um, you know, who are kind of millennials or younger, whether they think that's cool or good, they would say yes. Um, and, you know, that, you know, generally speaking, people are excited about the idea of culture being um, not just unidirectional, but something that we kind of all participate in um, that involves sort of being influenced by each other's work, referencing each other's work, sampling each other's work. Um, and so to me, you know, a commons is, you know, about kind of restructuring our thinking about how artists are compensated for our labor. And so rather than thinking about it as let's create false scarcity around something that actually basically in the digital age could be more or less limitless. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's what basically all digital rights management is trying to do, right? It's trying to create false scarcity around something that the technology is there to be shared more or less infinitely um, with everyone. And so, you know, trying to create false scarcity, I think will always just be sort of a regressive, you know, uh, kind of practice. Um, but I think it's also just a losing battle because in the end, you know, people actually want access. People want to be able to participate in culture. And um, instead of trying to keep it away from them, I think we should try to figure out how to make it even easier for people to do so, and then also make it easier and uh, more compelling for people to support artists that they care about. Um, and then I think, you know, in the end, we also just need massive structural reforms. You know, I would argue that, you know, enacting universal healthcare would do a lot more to help the arts economy than any type of copyright enforcement um, or, you know, yeah. uh, more stringent copyright enforcement, right? Like just having artists be able to have access to healthcare um, without having to worry about how, where we're going to get it from, you know, would be huge. Um, and so I think, you know, we often just need to think a little bit bigger. I also talk a little bit sometimes about um, the importance of applying sort of an abolitionist analysis to copyright enforcement, that in the end, mm -hmm. copyright enforcement is a form of policing. It's, you know, yeah. and, and in a funny way, most people's strongest association with copyright is that like scary screen that you see at the beginning of every movie that's like, if you share this, the FBI will come for you, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. And it's, you know, that's not kind of like one extreme example. The reality is that you know, effectively all copyright enforcement online is dependent on surveillance where either ISPs or websites are scanning, uh, looking for copyrighted content and censorship where that content then gets removed or taken down and often, you know, erroneously or even content that's being used in a manner that is consistent with fair use um, or isn't actually a copyright violation can still be taken down. And even if it gets reinstated a few days later, that doesn't really matter if you're, say, an activist who is using that clip for a camp, a campaign or for a piece of satire or something. 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, having that content scrubbed from the internet for a couple of days could make or break whether your campaign takes off. And so I think we need to recognize that tension and those harms um, in trying to apply, again, a bit more of an abolitionist lens to this type of enforcement. And instead of thinking about, well, how can we get better at enforcement? Think about, well, how do we create the material conditions where it wouldn't matter? Where it doesn't matter if content is being shared widely and freely because artists are being compensated in some other manner. I want to jump back just for a second because you mentioned the possibility that Spotify might be literally degrading the way music is made, and I find that really interesting. I've certainly noticed that the album, like the full album, is sort of disappearing as a unit of musical creation because everything is singles. There's this incredibly competitive market to get put on one of Spotify's cool playlists and get attention, and you do that by creating a hit single. The album just isn't instantaneous enough for Spotify's algorithm. So you have this situation where Spotify is literally influencing structurally the way music is being created. I think it's important that we don't, you know, that we don't ascribe inherent value to the way that we have done things in the past, right? Definitely. You know, I yeah. think like, um, you know, like I love albums and I like mm -hmm. you know, kind of creating albums and thinking about the curation of an album. Um, but I think if like in 50 years, that's just like not how like the kids these days consume music. That's not necessarily inherently bad, right? Um, but I think again, it's about like giving our artists more control, right? Like mm -hmm. artists should be able to create art in a way that feels good to us and and feel like we have at least some chance of being able to pay rent and feed ourselves at the end of the day. Um, yeah. And whether that's you know, and and I think the the problem is not necessarily that like it's bad for folks to put out singles. I mean, in some ways, I think it's actually cool that you know it's easier now perhaps for someone to just like see something happen in the world write a song about it and whip it out there as a single and and get it up online and and out you know and easily accessible to lots of people very quickly i think that's actually pretty cool um and that mm -hmm. there's ways in which that actually you know is good for the world i think what stinks is when you know artists feel like that's the only way that they can you know share their art or share their music um, or that is the only profitable way to do so. And so I think trying to just change the incentive structure so that artists, you know, can, can, you know, release music or, or art um, or creations in whatever format makes the most sense for the art um, and for listeners and for, you know, the community that we're trying to build rather than kind of being beholden to, you know, the, the whims or the algorithmic, uh, you know, graces of uh, one or two companies. Evan makes an incredibly good point here. There's no telling what forms or mediums music could take in the future. Spotify's algorithm certainly wouldn't be friendly to, say, a one-hour DJ set recorded as basically one sound clip and not delineated between songs. And that's also awesome, but Spotify and this copyright maximalism are influencing the actual production of music in such a way that it forecloses the possibility of these new mediums and forms even emerging to begin with. I don't know. You know, there isn't just like one, one way to consume music. And again, if we think yeah. about the past too, you know, uh, you know, I don't think that the world was a better place for music when like it was impossible to share your music with the world without having enough money to press a thousand CDs. You know, I think that that was a huge barrier for a lot of people. And so again, I think the ability that like any kid in their bedroom can record something cool on GarageBand or whatever from free software and throw it up on the internet for people to listen to, I think that's awesome. I think we need more of that, like less of that friction, less gatekeepers, less barriers. Um, but again, the challenge is 
what policies, structural and otherwise, do we need in place to ensure that then those who decide to pursue this as a career can make a living doing it? I don't want to be out here shaming people who listen to their music on Spotify, because frankly, it's the easiest way to listen to music for a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. The goal should be to create a world where there is something that's just as easy and just as accessible for listeners, um, but where artists are being fairly compensated. So, you know, to me, um, you know, I don't see any real, you know, problem or, um, you know, it's, it's not for me about, um, kind of even, you know, some like sticking it to them or hypocrisy. It's really just sort of a, a, a fact of the current, uh, music ecosystem that if you want your music to be accessible to lots of people, it's going to have to be on all of these platforms. And so again, that's why I think it's not about, you know, just boycotting those platforms or shaming people who use them. It's about collective action and organizing both among artists and music listeners to fight for better platforms um, and better models that work for everyone. It's, it's funny. I think if there's one positive thing that Spotify does prove, it's the number of people that actually do pay for a subscription suggests that people are actually willing to pay for music. The surge of piracy in the early 2000s wasn't just people trying to get out of paying for music. If people have the means, they will. I think the vinyl resurgence also kind of proves that. I know when I was in high school, the thing that I would do would be to download an album off of Mediafire to make sure I like it and then go into a local vinyl shop to actually purchase the LP. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times people used to come up to me at a show or something and be like, hey, I downloaded all of your music off of archive.org. Like, here's 50, <laughs> here's 50 bucks or like, right, you uh -huh. know, and, you know, or just I would get like, you know, I mean, I, I was part of a group called the Riot Folk Collective, which was sort of a like income sharing collective of radical musicians. Awesome. And yeah, we, we were like hosting our wave files on archive.org, like even before Napster exists or whatever, you know, trying basically like encouraging people like download this and here's how to donate to us if you want to. And yeah, like people would just, you know, throw down some, like way more money than than buying an album or something because they wanted to support the work. Um, and, you know, again, I think, um, you know, just getting past the thinking of like the only way to make money is from creating false scarcity and then capitalizing off of it. Um, you know, we just need to, to rethink, you know, I think a lot of different aspects of that. And I think for a lot of musicians today, you know, playing live is still a huge source of our income, you know, which yeah. is part of why the pandemic has been so crushing. Um, but, you know, I think for me, you know, as a relatively, you know, independent and, and not super well-known artist, um, you know, a, a lot of, you know, probably, you know, 60 or 70% of my income for many years came from people who came to my shows because they had downloaded my music illegally yeah, um, and then bought an album in person or donated at the door or, you know, made a donation or whatever. And, you know, it's, if, if piracy hadn't existed, it's not that I would have made more money. I would have made less money um, because mm -hmm. no one would have been at those shows because no one would have known who I was. Uh, just so my editor doesn't get mad at me, the views on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Atwood Magazine. Uh, again, you know, this false scarcity model may work for Metallica um, or Beyonce yeah. or whatever, um, but it, you know, rarely does it work for um, those of us outside the mainstream. And, you know, I think especially if you look at that historically within the context of, you know, the music industry and kind of, um, whose voices have been prioritized and whose have been left out, then you start to see um, that that's not just an issue of access, but it's an issue of equity. 
If people are concerned about this, Evan, or net neutrality more in general, or some of the other issues you advocate for, such as LGBTQ plus rights, what should they do? Yeah, I'd say, you know, kind of to break that into three categories, you know, if you just want to connect with me and, um, you know, sort of the the wide range of stuff that I'm involved in, you know, follow me on Twitter uh, or Instagram or whatever, um, you know, fight for the future. We're at fightforthefuture.org. And we have, you know, really a wide range of campaigns running at the moment. And there's always kind of, you know, the top easiest ways to get involved, whether it's signing a petition or making a phone call or making a donation. Um, you know, so, you know, follow up with us there, get on the email list. Um, cause the reality is the problems that we're talking about here on this podcast are not going to be solved overnight. So really I encourage folks to, you know, join up with, reach out to organizations who are out there doing this work. You know, some other great folks working on this stuff are media justice, who are an organization that focus on tech policy, uh, and it's disproportionate impact on communities of color. Um, you know, there's our friends at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Creative Commons who've been doing awesome work around copyright and trying to rethink copyright in ways that um, are more compatible with a free and open internet. You know, finally, I guess, um, you know, I would just encourage folks, um, you know, who are looking to get more involved in, in LGBTQ organizing and politics to link up with local organizations nearby. Um, you know, especially those that are led by trans folks and trans folks of color who are often on the front lines, uh, you know, both experiencing disproportionate harm, uh, but also uh, leading the way, um, leading the way of how we organize and fight for the most vulnerable members of our community. So rather than chipping in your 10 bucks to some huge faceless NGO based out of Washington, D.C., you know, find the local organizations near you that are on the ground helping people. You know, your donation or your volunteer hours or your support is going to go a lot further um, with those types of organizations than with, uh, you know, the really big ones. Awesome. Is there anything else I can plug for you? Uh, I guess final plug, I would just, you know, again, shout out the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers. If you're a musician or an artist and, you know, who are impacted by the stuff that we're talking about here, um, you should link up with them. Um, you know, they're hosting regular meetings. They have a really cool uh, democratic structure. And um, it's exciting, I think, because uh, historically, a lot of the institutions out there that claim to represent and fight for artists um, have often not been looking out for the interests of kind of smaller, independent artists and the kind of new generation of artists and creators. Uh, and I think those folks at UMA are, are doing an awesome job kind of trying to think it through. Um, and, you know, I might not agree uh, with, you know, every single person there on everything, but I think that they have created a forum for people to come together and for artists to come together and to fight for a better future where um, artists are fairly compensated for our labor. So would shout out to UMA as well. All of those links will be in the description. So once again, everyone, that was Evan Greer. Evan, thank you so much for your time and insight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Danny. Thanks uh, for chatting. And sorry it took us so long to connect. It's been a bit of a, a hectic few months, but I'm glad we finally did. This has been Automated Beat Machine. Thank you for listening. This episode was made by me with theme music and production assistance by Alex T. Pasquale script assistance from Greg Ekstrom, and artwork by Jimmy Christian. I know everyone says it, I'm going to say it too. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and review on the podcast app of your choice. It really does help, and I'm not above begging, so please do it. The show is supported by Atwood Magazine. Please be sure to check out the excellent journalism going on on that site. And if you want to keep up with all the detritus floating around in my brain, follow me on Twitter. Thanks again for listening.